Hello, I'm Alec Avdikov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. It sure has been a long time since we had a regular narrative episode. I hope you all have enjoyed the guests I've had on the podcast. I know I have. But now, let's settle in with the sound of my voice for today's episode. However, before we go straight into the recap, I have some people I need to thank. I deeply appreciate everyone who is currently financially supporting me on Patreon. I would be extremely thankful if anyone wants to join and chip in with a few dollars a month. You will have special features that normal Frederick the Great fans wish they had. The link to the Patreon is in the description if you want to be among some of the best Frederican fans out there. Also, be sure to go to social media and message me if you have any questions about the podcast. Anyway, let's go all the way back to January's episode about the fall of Sir Robert Walpole's government in Britain. Here is a visible attempt to try to make the recap smaller so we can talk about the details of today's episode. So, Britain got into the War of Jenkins' Ear with Spain and failed to defeat the Spanish in their colonies. Britain's continental ally, Austria, was attacked by Prussia, and with more energetic diplomacy, France and Spain could have invaded Britain right then and there. 1741 was a very bad year for Britain with multiple failed attacks in the Spanish-held Caribbean. This led to the eventual fall of Walpole's government on February 6th, 1742. And that, folks, is how you make a shorter recap. Now we can get into the interconnectedness of European politics and how Britain's politics directly affects Frederick the Great's life and times. As I said in the past, Britain was one of the biggest naval powers in the world in 1742. They also had one of the richest economies because they didn't have to spend a large chunk of the government budget on maintaining a standing army. Prussia may call itself powerful based upon the sound of its soldiers marching by. Britain, however, could hear its power based on the clinking of gold coins. So, as we discussed, 1742 was a crucial year for Prussia because it looked like the tide of war was turning against it. Frederick's French and Bavarian allies were being pushed back from their drive on Austrian territory. The Holy Roman Emperor, Charles VII, had his own capital captured on February 12th. This was on the same day he was crowned Emperor. Then, of course, there was the Battle of Chotuzitz, where Frederick defeated the Austrians, and this time he was actually fully present on the battlefield. We're basically now caught up to the war news on the European continent. So, here is the reason why I made the whole random sidetrack to talk about Sir Robert Walpole and the British situation for three full episodes. Well, I said in the episode titled, The Era of Walpole, that Britain's foreign policy had two main choices. Britain could either A, become more entangled on the European continent, or B, could be more isolationist and focus on their trade with the Empire. Walpole's whole grip on power depended on option B being Britain's foreign policy. With the fall of isolationism and Britain fighting Spain alone in the War of Jenkins' Ear, it was just a matter of time before Walpole's grip on power would loosen just enough for another cunning man to take his place. 
I say man because politics was sadly a man's game in Britain at the time. But anyway, the man who would replace Walpole as PM was the Earl of Wilmington. I would like to go on a small side tangent. The actual office of Prime Minister in Britain did not officially exist until 1905. So when I say that Wilmington was the Prime Minister, it really means that his official post was technically the First Lord of the Treasury. However, he was still called the Prime Minister unofficially. Confused? Me too, let's carry on. So, despite Walpole's falling from power, his inner circle, such as the Duke of Newcastle, were still mainly in power. However, an important replacement would take place within the British Ministry on February 11, 1742. Sir Charles Wager was the first Lord of the Admiralty, the post Winston Churchill would receive centuries later. He was overseeing the British plan of defeating Spain by attacking their colonies in the Caribbean. Wager had lost his confidence in this failing plan, considering how overstretched Britain's navy was in 1741. Therefore, he asked to resign and was replaced by someone in the most pinafore way possible. After all, the saying goes, Stick close to your desks and never go to sea, and you all may be rulers of the King's Navy. So, Sir Charles Wager, a man with tons of experience in the Navy, was replaced by a man whose father was a Navy man, but who had not a single ounce of experience on the open seas. This man's name was Daniel Finch, the 8th Earl of Winchelsea. So yeah, things are getting overly spicy for the British Ministry considering the first Lord of the Admiralty was meant to be a senior post for men of naval talent. However, the matter of key importance to this podcast is not naval matters, but what Britain will bring to the European chessboard in terms of an army. It was proposed in 1741 that Britain would help its Austrian ally with Danish and German auxiliary troops. However, this fell through because money was tight and Britain's attention was going to the war with Spain. By the 6th of May 1742, the first units of the British army began to land in Flanders across the English Channel. The military situation at this time looked like it was turning against the French and Prussian side and towards the Austrian and British side. The Prussian army was retreating, the French and Bavarian army were stuck in Prague, and the British were landing in Flanders. But the situation turned on a dime when Frederick won the Battle of Kotusitz, the first battle where he was totally present. With the battle won, the Treaty of Breslau was signed between Austria and Prussia. King George II of Britain was the mediator between the two Central European states and the guarantor of peace. It was in the best interest of all sides, especially Britain, for the peace to be concluded. For Britain, it would help Austria attack France. These troops would have been tied up against Prussia, however, it could now focus on the arch-rival France. The tide once again began to turn in favor of the Austro-British alliance. A state that was neutral at the start of the war could now participate in the conflict by mobilizing 50 battalions of infantry and 50 squadrons of cavalry. This state that could tip the scale is the Netherlands. The Dutch saw that if they didn't get their act together soon, Prussia and France could swallow them right up. King George II now saw a grand opportunity forming. The Austro-British Allied Army, or the Pragmatic Army, named after the Pragmatic Sanction, 
had no major French field armies opposing them in northern France. They could now invade northern France. King George II was all like, yeah, sign me up, and he personally led the army. King George II, of course, while being a veteran of the War of Spanish Succession, knew little of commanding, and the Earl of Stair was the man who actually commanded. Here was the military situation Stair was dealing with. Prussia had pulled out of the war on June 11, 1742. This caused the French army to be surrounded in Prague, the capital of Bohemia, by the Austrians. In August of 1742, the French army under Marshal Maillabois advanced into Bohemia from their base in Westphalia. The whole reason Maillabois was in Westphalia in the first place was to stop Hanover from joining the war against France. Now, there was nothing stopping Hanover's troops to join the British troops in Flanders in what is today Belgium and cross the border into France itself. Stair saw the situation and wanted even more than a few border fortresses in France. No, no, the Earl of Stair had his eyes on capturing Paris itself. According to Richard Harding's book, The Emergence of Britain's Global Naval Supremacy, The War of 1739-1748, through 1748, quote, as Stair claimed, at a single blow, George II could bring peace to Europe. Stair even tried to persuade Prussia to join the war against France and create an army with all members of the Holy Roman Empire against France. Frederick obviously said no to this because it would mean joining the war against the enemy of Austria. However, Stair's plan to advance against France took the British Parliament by surprise. This is mainly because Britain would have to pay the entire army, which consisted of not just the British, but the Hanoverians and Hessian auxiliary troops. So Parliament took its time trying to decide if they should take responsibility for paying this massive army. There was even a politician by the name of William Pitt who was deeply against paying Hanover's soldiers. He even argued that Britain had no place in fighting on European soil at all. Pitt said in a speech, quote, It is all too apparent that this powerful and formidable kingdom, Britain, is considered only as a province to a despicable electorate, Hanover, and that in consequence of a scheme formed long ago and invariably pursued, these troops are hired only to drain this unhappy nation of its money. However, the motion to pay the Hanoverians to fight against France in Flanders passed through both the House of Commons in December 1742 and the House of Lords in February 1743. But let's get back to the wacky politics on the European continent. On December 16, 1742, the French army that had its triumphant march into Bohemia the year before limped away from the city with roughly 14,000 demoralized troops. On January 29, 1743, there was another major blow to French prestige. The 89-year-old Minister of Foreign Affairs, Cardinal Fleury, died. Throughout the winter and spring, as French armies were retreating, the Austrians were advancing into central and southern Germany. They were intent on taking over Bavaria. The elector of Bavaria, Emperor Charles VII, was living in Augsburg rather than his own capital. I would imagine he was rethinking the life choices that led him up to this point. With Britain's army camping along the Rhine in the winter of 1742 through 1743, 
it now looked like Austria and Britain's armies would unite to make one super army called the Pragmatic Army. The winter was really crappy for the British soldiery due to the fact that about 37% of the army became sick. April of 1743 was too cold and delayed the movement of the British Allied Army. Interesting things were also taking place on the diplomatic front of Europe during this time as well. In May, King George II went across the English Channel to personally take command of the army. The Netherlands agreed to send its army to guard the rear of the Pragmatic Army in southern Holland on May 10, 1743. The Austrians in Bavaria pushed the French and Bavarians back. Emperor Charles VII, who had finally returned to his capital in March of 1743, had to leave Munich once again in early June. However, the war could change on a dime. The supply lines of France's armies were shortening and the armies were concentrating. All it would take to turn the war around is one crushing victory against the Pragmatic Army. Yet the dominoes continued to fall against France with growing speed. Russia had been at war with Sweden since 1741. The war looked like it was going to end in favor of the Russians. Sardinia-Piedmont, in the northern section of Italy, between the French border and the Austrian-controlled Tuscany, were having talks between Britain and Austria to see if they would join the war on the side against France. Everything seemed to be turning against France. Britain's role in this turning tide would be to move east across the Rhine, near Frankfurt am Main, to try to either unite with the Austrian army and invade France itself, or to destroy the French army in Germany and move against France after. The Earl of Stair, the commander of the Pragmatic Army, advanced eastward to go after the French army led by Marshal Noy. The advance was so quick that George II only caught up to the army on June 19th after beginning his journey in May. On June 19, 1743, King George II ordered the army to stop at Aschaffenburg. A man that was traveling with King George II was his son, the Duke of Cumberland. He will play an important role later in this podcast. Now I must thank people who follow me on Twitter. Specifically, I have to thank Simon Batten and Beatrice Knight for helping me understand the calendar situation. So. Three scholarly sources I tend to trust said the battle took place on June 16th, whereas literally every other source said the 27th. It took lots of digging, but thanks to Beatrice and Simon, I was able to find out that both dates are technically correct. See, Britain still used the Julian calendar, and they were about 11 days behind the Gregorian calendar. Britain switched to the calendar we use today, the Gregorian calendar, in 1752. So, in this next section, I will use the Gregorian calendar, or the calendar we currently use, to describe the events. This is because Britain would do the same just a decade after the events, and it is easier for a modern audience used to the Gregorian calendar to understand. Thank you so much to the people who helped me. So, the British were north of the Main River, and the French were on the southern bank. However, a French section of the army cut off supplies behind the British without them knowing. On June 26th, Britain's king ordered a retreat west to counter this threat. By this time, the Pragmatic Army did not have bread supplies for one week and were plundering the surrounding towns and churches.
During the retreat, the British scout began to notice something awfully weird. The French had crossed the river under the command of the Duc de Gramont and occupied the town of Dettingen. Marshal Noailles also crossed the mine to the east of the pragmatic army near Aschaffenburg. King George was now surrounded on two sides. On the 27th, the battle began with French strikes from cannons across the Mine River. This caused little actual damage to the pragmatic army under the command of King George II. The Duc d'Arcamont was supposedly given orders to stand his ground at Dettingen. However, if this was the case, he did the exact opposite. The French army near Dettingen sent its cavalry on very disorganized charges against what it considered to be an inferior enemy. This attack was repulsed with rather high casualties. Then the French infantry attacked and were once again thrown back by the British. The French then fled with a major panic back to the town of Dettingen and across the bridge they had built with boats connected to one another. And in the same vein as the Battle of Leipzig to you Napoleonic era fans, it was said that the bridge across the mine collapsed and many French soldiers drowned. There was no allied attempt to strike back against the French and the pragmatic army slowly made its way back to the town of Hanau. This defeat was quite a disaster for France, but it definitely could have been a worse disaster if Britain had more competent officers who wanted to capitalize on the French errors. Overall, Dettingen did not have the strategic effect that Britain wanted. We will get more into what Frederick was doing during this time, but it is obvious to say that when he first heard the news of the French defeat at Dettingen, he was furious. I wouldn't say Frederick Wilhelm's level of anger, but quite near it. According to David Fraser's book on Frederick the Great, he reportedly exploded with rage, saying, I won't hear the French named in my presence. I won't have their troops or generals mentioned. No, I beaten, and by whom? by men who know nothing of deployment. Prussia and France were still technically allied after all. Therefore, a French defeat would make the Austro-British cause stronger and his own cause slightly weaker. He now believed that an alliance would form that consisted of Austria, Saxony, Russia, Britain, and Denmark. This alliance would be squarely against him. Frederick was in quite the spot after the defeat at Dettingen. So, this concludes my super side tangent about the British in the early 18th century. I did it just to give a better background for the true effects of this battle. Dettingen was not fully decisive, but it did give the Austrian side of war a better chance for victory. Britain was now more or less fully involved in the War of Austrian Succession. However, with the legal technicalities of the time, Britain had only physically declared war on Spain despite the fact that their king was fighting full-on field battles against the French. France had also still not declared war on Austria, even though they had captured the capital of Bohemia for a solid year. The War of Austrian Succession had moved beyond the idea of Maria Theresa inheriting the Habsburg lands. It was now a naked power grab between nearly all the European great powers. The balance of power in Europe is now tipping in favor of Britain and Austria. How would Frederick respond to this French disaster? 
Find out in the next episode of the Life and Times of Frederick the Great. On today's episode, Britain sent its troops to Europe, financed Hanoverian and Hessian auxiliaries, and King George II was the last British monarch to personally command a battle in his victory at Dettingen. Once again, I want to thank everyone who supports me on Patreon, especially the newest member, Lee. You help keep this podcast going. If you want to participate further in this podcast, go follow my Twitter or Instagram, or follow me on Patreon. The links are in the show notes below. I now look to Tigger for inspiration to conclude today's episode. I therefore say TTFN. Ta-ta for now.